You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Yeah, welcome today to Mosaic Church. Uh, whether you're online or you're in the room, we're one church, Mosaic Church. I'm Morgan, the lead pastor here, and I hope you had a great holiday and wherever you were, whoever you celebrated with. Uh, but glad you're here today. We're taking a look at our final look at the book of Esther. We've been in a series called For such a time as this in our scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and to your right from chapters 7 and 9. Here we go. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what's your petition? It'll be given you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I'd have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. That's the reading of God's word and all God's people said, come on, amen. Yeah, some of you you may know that I did my undergraduate work at the University of Houston, which for all you Aggies in the room and online is known as Cougar High. Yeah, and all I will say to that in response is that there's a reason there are Aggie jokes and not Cougar jokes. Thank you very much. I know I'm coming out firing today. I've already divided half the room. All right. Anyway, I didn't grow up in Houston, actually. Uh, I just moved there for college. And some of you know that, that when you move to a new area, when you, you relocate or to, you go to a new location, like, you know, 90% of you at Mosaic have done coming from Southern California, but that's okay. No, we love California. My wife's from California. We love California ports. Uh, but when you move to a new area, you discover uh, new quirks, eccentricities about a new place. And one of the quirks that I discovered uh, about Houston, all true Houstonians, Houstonites, whatever whatever they're called, uh, know about from back in the day, and that's someone by the name of Marvin Zindler. 
I know Marvin Zindler, first service, a lot of folk who knew Marvin Zindler. But Marvin, here he is, Marvin, God rest his soul, was a, a fancy uh, dressing, kind of odd looking, white haired old guy on the Houston News. He was a Houston newscaster who had this little segment on one of the, the evening news there. It was called, you can say it if you know it with me, it, it was called Slime in the Ice Machine. Slime in the Ice Machine. Yes, yeah, Slime in the Ice Machine was a segment aimed at exposing local restaurants and eateries if they had like bugs or dirt or rats or insects or mold or something, or if they had like cheated on their health inspector report. And of course, people loved watching Marvin stick at the local restaurants. Uh, he'd take a hidden camera, you know, like a public defender uh, into those places. He'd come out with the evidence that he found and he'd go on the evening news and say, there's slime in the ice machine. And uh, by the way, you can Google all of that after church today, by the way. Not now, thank you very much. And you can see it for yourself because Marvin wasn't subtle. The man wasn't sophisticated. No, he was a force to be reckoned with. But here's the thing about what he did. Funny glasses, uh, funny clothes and all. He showed you the truth. He showed you what was really going on, the way things really were. And here's what happened. Many times, many times, he didn't just expose shady restaurants. He brought about, and here's the word, a reversal to those places, reversal to those things. He reversed not only what you maybe have thought about your favorite restaurant, but many times the fortunes of that restaurant or eatery or bakery were reversed, both for good and bad, depending on how they responded. Thank you very much, you know, Marvin Dittler. But reversal, reversal, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because like the great Marvin Zindler showed us, a reversal can be good and bad at the same time, depending on which side you're on, right? Like your sports team, your team wins, the other people's team loses or vice versa. Uh, Reversals, uh, they can also be unexpected. Like when you get either that bad report from a doctor or that clean bill of health. Uh, reversals, they're almost always, usually are dramatic. Like, like when you finally got that, that money back from the company who'd been sticking it to you for so long, but the money came through and you felt so good. Or they can be dramatic, like when you, you found out on social media that the person you thought was one person was actually another because of that post, and that feels bad. See, reversals can be good and bad. They can be unexpected. They're always dramatic. And reversal, perhaps more than anything else, is the theme of, it is the key to understanding what is happening here in the book of Esther. Because the whole book, think about it, it's about reversals and dramatic reversals at that, right? One minute it says, Vashti's queen, Then she's deposed. One minute Esther's an orphan outcast. The next minute she's queen. One minute the villain Haman, he's he's riding high. The next minute his plot's exposed and he suffers these dramatic, ironic consequences. One minute Esther, she's scared and speechless. The next minute she's roaring in the palace. One minute the king writes one decree. The next minute he's writing another one. One minute Esther's uncle Mordecai is down, then he's up. And the whole book ends with one minute the Jews thinking they're about to be wiped out. And then the next minute, not only are they liberated, but the story is with Persian people. It says, converting to faith in the one true God. There are more Jews, not fewer, at the end of the book. Up is down. Down is up. Things turn in a moment. What is a long shot becomes a certainty. That's reversal. That's reversal. 
And here is why, here is why this matters and why Esther matters. It's because at this moment here, this thought here through the lens of reversal right here, that right now, you and I, I think, we can see most clearly into the central message of the Christian faith, what's called the gospel. The gospel is just a word that means message. It means literally good news, as in good news that comes into the world, as in good news that comes into your old life and reverses it and turns it into something new. So today, today, right now, I wanna try to show you how the gospel in Esther points us to the gospel of Jesus and how if you'll believe that, trust that, that your life, your situation can be reversed, can be changed, turned around. What do I mean? Uh, Let me try to show you through three reversals, dramatic reversals, this book tries to show us. You ready? (laughs) Ready or not? Here they come anyway. All right. Number one, there's a reversal we're going to see of real beauty, reversal of real beauty. Give me 90 seconds to recap the plot. So far on the story, we've seen how uh, the Jewish people here, uh, roughly 480 BC, they've been deported, they've been exiled, they've been scattered across the Persian empire. And while they're there in captivity, the Persian king Xerxes deposed his queen named Vashti. The search goes out and on for a new queen. And of course, lo and behold, it's none other than the beautiful young orphan girl named Esther. She's been raised by her uncle named Mordecai. Or as we heard last week in the TGV, the Terrence Green version, his nickname's actually Mo or Morty, depending on if you knew him back in the day, right? He keeps an eye on her while she's in the palace. But Morty, we've seen, has refused to bow to Haman, one of the king's officials. And so out of pride and anger and disrespect, um, uh, Haman tries now uh, to, to get back at them. And he tricks the king into signing a law that will allow the Persian military to wipe out the Jewish people. And last week we saw how when Mordecai found all this out, he, he, he goes in and he pleads with Queen Esther to do something about it, to not stay silent, but to risk her life, to go before the king, though the king is not called for her. And we ended last week with Queen Esther quite dramatically deciding she was going to do it. And she says, I'll go. And then she says, if I perish, I perish. Yeah, pretty dramatic. And that's what we finished last week. And today we read, she does it. She goes through with it. She goes before the king. He extends his scepter to her as a sign of his favor. She's allowed to make a request, which is this. She said, I want to throw a banquet for three people, for me, for you, O king, and for Haman. That happens. They've got the first banquet. Now she invites him back for a second banquet. And here today at this second banquet, as the king's in high spirits, as his heart is open now towards Esther, he asks her, what she wants, what she really, really wants. And now the whole thing spills out after years. Esther reveals her ethnic identity. She identifies with her people and she pleads for her people, pleads for her life. And Haman is revealed as the author of the evil plot. And at this revelation, the king goes out in his garden to think because he knows he's got a big problem. He hadn't thought this through. His queen's about to be killed. And while he's out, Haman realizes he's in trouble. And so he falls over on Queen Esther, begging for his life. And you should know that to even be alone with a woman in the king's harem, if you weren't a eunuch, was against the law. And so to touch the queen like this was an act punishable by death. 
And when the king comes back in, he's found his solution. He's found his way out. Haman will be executed and he is. And from this point on now, one good thing after another happens for Esther and the Jewish people. But, but before we look at what those good things are, let's just pause. I want to pause right here and look at what has happened to Esther over the course of the book, front to back. Because when we first met her, if you were here a few weeks ago, we saw that though she is Jewish, she's basically been culturally assimilated in Persia. She's become a completely secular person. She's got a faith background, raised in church, raised in synagogue, but she is just like all her other friends. She sleeps with the man she isn't married to. She eats the unclean food of Persia. She marries an unbeliever, all things forbidden by her faith. She's just like everyone else. And on top of that, character-wise, Personally, she's a doormat. She just does what anyone tells her, especially every single man. And yet, here at the end of the book, she's a force. <laughs> she's organizing the community to fast. She's putting on royal banquets to like press for uh, you know brand new domestic public policy. She wins through in the end, and she brings it says relief for her people. Hey, look at her language. She goes from saying nothing for four chapters to stuff like, if I die, I die. If I go, I go. If I get killed, I kill. You know, and she risks it all. And through her, God saves the day. It's an amazing transformation. At the beginning, see, she's only beautiful on the outside. But by the end, she's become a beauty, both inside and out. What are we being shown? Here it is. We're being shown what true beauty really is. Someone by the name of Elaine Scarry, she's a Harvard researcher, thinker. She wrote a little book a few years ago. It was called On Beauty and Being Just. And her thesis is that experiences of true beauty call us out of self-centered living into living more other-centered, more just lives. Kind of like when you, you, you go and you see a mountain or a beach or a sunset, you just feel like, man, I want to be, you know, a better person. And, and someone by the name of Enuma Okoro, she's a Nigerian-American, there she is, Christian writer. She picks up Scary's thesis in a little article she wrote this year called Blackness and Beauty. And in it, she makes the case that the norms that we create, any culture creates for beauty are really important. That the images we create, the stories we tell about what beautiful is really matter. And she's right. And we all know this, this of course, is true in lots of ways. And let me just give you one, because I've got a daughter. Lots of you have daughters. Some of you one day will have a daughter. And I, I know this is true. We know this is true. We know that over-sexualized TV shows, movies, Music videos, singers, rappers, artists, dancers, photographs that create a false sense of beauty for women. It starts in childhood. Women are pressured to dress, act in certain ways to achieve not only some kind of impossible appearance standard, some kind of impossible weight standard, which can cause eating disorders if they don't feel like they hit it. But worst of all, all of that hyper-sexualized content creates a narrative within women and women that you and I love that cause them to believe that who they are on the outside, how they look to a man or to men, how they perform for men is their true worth. I tell you, that narrative, that story, that is not true. That is not true. That narrative, I don't care who says it, that narrative is not empowering. That, that narrative is destructive for men and women alike. 
It's not true. That story's not true. Neither are some other stories true. Let me give you a couple examples. Like the story that the elderly are disposable, can fend for themselves. Like the story that children aren't important or that they get in the way of life somehow or that, or that, or that one skin color is more lovely than another. And by the way, you should know that, that, the, that the Persians, they told that story too. The Persians actually were famous for their beauty treatments, some of which included treatments to lighten a person's a woman's skin. And Esther likely received one of those too because that was a story they told. But that story's not true. And Enuma Okoro, she sums up the whole thing like this. I love this quote. There are stories, she said, quote, we simply have to continue to refute and to resist. And there are some stories we have to learn to tell and to keep telling until they become the new truth. Our stories, like beauty, can be salvific. And she's right. Because you can see it, can't you? Right here in Esther's story. Esther's story shows you the reversal of true beauty. That true beauty comes not from who a person is on the, the outside, but from who a person is on the inside. What they can give for others. What they can risk for other people. And Esther's true beauty is what? Salvific. It saves her people. And the reason you can know this kind of story, hear me, is the most true story is because of which story it points to. The story of Jesus, the, who the ultimate beauty he was. He lost his beauty for us. He became poor through his poverty. We could become rich. And that most true story, the story of the greatest beauty who lost his beauty, that we can now inherit his beauty. And through that self-sacrifice, he becomes even more beautiful. That's the story we got to tell and keep telling to refute all those other false narratives. So what if? What if you believed that story today about yourself? Huh? I'll bet that story, that beautiful story could be, hear me, salvific. It could save you in a way. Keep on saving you. And here's how. It can save you from having to look a certain way. Save you from how maybe you have to feel about yourself, how you have to spend your money. Save you from those things. See, learning to tell and keep telling the right story. That's a mark of Christian growth. Let's call our sanctification, how we grow in grace. We tell ourselves the right story about real beauty. Number one, there's a reversal of real beauty in Esther, but that's not the only one. Number two, I'll try to show you here. There's also a reversal, I'll put it like this, of the truest law. Back to the text, back to the story. Once, once the king finds out the plot, once Haman's been put to death, there's still, you know, the pesky matter of that king's decree, which has empowered, we've seen, the Persian people to plunder the Jewish people. And we're told that decree, it can't be reversed. So what does the king do? Well, he decrees a new law that supersedes the old. The new law allows the Jews to arm themselves, defend themselves against anyone who would wish them harm. And in the same way that that old law went out into all the kingdom, so too the new law goes out into all the kingdom. The old law still exists, but there's a new law that comes along that allows, hear me, those who trust it, those who believe in it, and those who will act on it to live and not die. This is also, hear me, the gospel in Esther. And here's how. About 500 years after this, the apostle Paul wrote something in Romans chapter six. Paul, who thought about his life, thought about his own heart. He looked out at the world and he said this. He says, there's like 
There's like this law that dominates humanity. It is like this law. It's gone out into all the world. You can see it everywhere. Everyone experiences it, actually contributes toward it. It's called the law of sin and death. You're born into it. It brings pain and destruction. And you can't escape it, he said, until now. Now, he says, because of Jesus, because of the life, the death, and the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, there is a new spiritual law that can come into your life. It can supersede and overcome every old law. Paul put it like this, Romans 8, 2. He said, because through Christ Jesus, I love this, the law, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. A couple of months ago, uh, actually, I got this email from a college student here, here at Mosaic, and, and he gave me permission to read it and to share it with you. I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. He said, quote, about a month ago, here's his story. He said, about a month ago, I realized I'd never truly been a Christian. I'd spent my whole life thinking I was saved because I believed the gospel. I prayed the sinner's prayer as a child. But somehow, the actual meaning of it all went completely over my head. When I got to college, I fell away from the faith and into deep, persistent sin. Video games, porn, grades, popularity, leisure, friends, career, all took priority. Christ never had first place or second or even third. I was so caught up with projecting the outward appearance of a good Christian, quote unquote, that I failed to even notice the gravity of my sin. I had no true interest in reading the Bible, just an obligation. My prayers were sporadic, short and self-centered. I was a total hypocrite, but I didn't even realize it. I wasn't lying to myself. I actually believed I was totally fine, he said. He said, I had this certain addiction and I desperately wanted to quit. I tried for months and months to fix myself. I just couldn't do it. In the first week of August this year, 2020, I finally reached the end of myself. Something led me to Google the words, don't we all Google these, habitual sin. <laughs> And I came across a video by a Christian speaker. I was expecting a quick fix to my problem, but instead I got 1 John chapter three and a super convicting message to re-examine my entire life. And here's the Bible verse that this speaker quoted. 1 John 3.10, it says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He went on to say, I realized I was still dead in my trespasses and a slave to sin. I spent all day relearning the gospel and the meaning of true repentance, which is a change of thinking, not just feeling sorry. And by the end of the night, I was on my knees weeping for the Lord to save me. I committed for the first time to actually making him my Lord to put nothing else before him and to rely on him for everything. The transformation, he said, in my heart was so immediate and tangible, it could have been nothing short of the Holy Spirit. And from that moment forward, through Christ's strength, I have been, he said, I've been free from this addiction. And today is 28 days clean when he wrote it. He changed my heart so drastically that even the thought of my old life disgusts me. There are other changes too. And every time I submit, I love this. Every time I submit to Christ, I just become more joyful. I have a new irresistible desire to learn what the Bible says and share it with as many people as possible. What happened? Here it is. Paul said it. The law of the spirit of life 
set him free from the law of sin and death. Because Paul, let me tell you, Paul was right both ways. You and I are born into a world where sin and death reign. But there is a truer law that can set you free from sin. And I want to tell you, you can have that today. Have that today. The gospel in Esther shows us a reversal of true beauty. It shows us a reversal of the truest law. And because of that, it gives us now finally something final and unexpected. Number three, I want to show you how ultimately there is a reversal of ultimate rest. And here it is. At the end of the very book, and you may have caught this during the reading, it says this, at the point of the whole book, the whole story is this. It says, Mordecai recorded these events as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. So it says that the Jews got relief. That's a Hebrew word, which literally means rest. They got rest from their enemies. And, and if you know anything about the Hebrew scriptures, the, the story of the Jewish people, you know that that concept, that idea was a really big deal because years before this, what had they been? Come on, slaves in Egypt, right? God had set them free, brought them into their promised land and promised them what? They would get rest from their enemies. And Moses gave it to them until he didn't. And Joshua then came along and he gave it to them until he didn't. And then David came along and Solomon came along and the judges all came along and gave it to them until they didn't. And now Esther here gives the Jewish people rest from their enemies for a while, but they always lose it eventually. And by the time, flash forward 500 years later, by the time that the first century AD rolls around and the person of Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene, we find it's happening all over again. The Jewish people have lost their rest. They're being oppressed once more, this time by the Roman empire. And so, so come on, you can understand, couldn't you? How a first century Jew who looked at Jesus of Nazareth, whom some said was the Messiah, the one of whom it was prophesied that he would be greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Solomon, give his people true rest. The Messiah was supposed to give them rest from their enemies. You could understand how a person in that day, say like mm, James and John, some of Jesus' first disciples, could look at Jesus and ask, Lord, is it at this time you're going to call down fire on our enemies. Lord, is it at this time you are going to restore <coughs> excuse me, the kingdom to Israel? Is it now the time you are going to give us rest from our enemies? What does Jesus of Nazareth do? He says, yes and no. No fire, no sword, no conquering. Instead, he says, go the extra mile. Love your enemies put your sword away. And then he goes and he dies for his enemies on a Roman cross. Why? Jesus is showing us how to get ultimate rest from our enemies. Something that as great as Esther was, even she could never give her people. Why? Here's why. It's because, think about it. When you fight evil with evil, what happens? Evil wins. 
When someone does something wrong to you, someone wrongs you, there's a kind of a force. It goes to work on you, in you, on the inside that makes you want to respond in kind. You see it starting on the playground. One kid kicks uh, Billy. You know, what does Sammy do? He kicks Billy back. You get punched. You want to punch back. You get cursed. You want to curse back. Uh, You get stolen from. You want to steal back. When you get discriminated against, you want to discriminate back. That's how evil works. Evil's like a kind of a seed, the proverb shows us. It comes into your life when you're wronged and like a virus. It tries to replicate itself in you and then through you back out in the world. How do you fight that? How do you fight that? Because fighting evil with evil, it never gives you rest, does it? Come on. Because when you, let's say you get someone back. Let's say you respond in kind. You get revenge. Your enemy suffers, but you're still not okay on the inside, are you? You're still messed up. You still don't have rest. How should you respond? How can we respond? Here it is. You respond with another kind of violence, the violence of grace, violence of grace. In Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, if you've seen it, you know that Liam Neeson, no, I'm sorry, Hugh Jackman, No, I'm sorry. Jean Valjean was a man who had been hurt by others. In turn, he begins to hurt others and he goes to prison for for theft. And after 19 years in prison, he's released and he's taken in by this old bishop. And one night, Jean Valjean's instincts begin to return and and he steals the bishop's silverware and he tries to sneak away at night when it's dark. But Valjean is caught by the police. And when they bring him back to the bishop's house, to Valjean's surprise, the bishop says, hey, hey. You know, you forgot your expensive candlesticks, which just happened to be the bishop's expensive candlesticks. And the the bishop chastises Valjean for leaving without all of this. And the police walk away mystified. But Valjean walks away traumatized. Victor Hugo put it like this. Here's from the book. He said, quote, when Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he felt he knew the pardon of this priest was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack which he had ever sustained on his heart. He suddenly knew that his hardness of heart would be complete if he resisted this kindness. He knew therefore that he must conquer or be conquered. There's no longer a middle course for him. He looked, he wept long and bitterly. Uh, How long did he weep thus? What did he do after weeping? Where did he go? Nobody knew. It was just known only this, that on that very night, The stage driver who drove the Grenoble route about 3 a.m. in the morning saw a man in the attitude of prayer kneeling on the pavement in the shadows before the door of the bishop's house. What happened? Come on. That the priest, you see it, did a kind of alternative violence, the violence of grace. It assaulted the soul of a person who could never be reached otherwise. And what happened? Jean Valjean, through this act of violent grace, got rest from his ultimate enemies, from the evil inside himself, and from hating the man who hunted him and wronged him over the course of his life. Javert, right? But it's Javert, his adversary, the French detective who hunts Javert to put him back in prison. It's he who, in the end, because he can't acknowledge grace when it's offered to him, he throws himself into the Seine, the river in Paris, and he drowns himself. Why? Because grace, grace is violent either way. When you experience it, it hits you. It 
impacts you. See, 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 we think rest comes when our enemies don't hate us. And that's a good thing. And I hope that happens for you. But let me tell you, that never lasts. <laughs> there are always going to be haters, <laughs> criticizers, critiquers, right? People who turn on you. But you, you, I, we can be different. We look for one kind of rest. Jesus holds out another. See, Haman, Haman, the guilty in this book, he rightly dies to preserve the life of the innocent Mordecai. And that's good. And that's just. But I want to tell you, but the gospel is better. Because in the greatest reversal of all, Jesus, the innocent, dies for us, the guilty, his enemies, to preserve our lives and to turn us into friends of God. And that's not just good, friends. That is grace. Grace, I want to tell you, it reverses things. It changes things. And receiving the grace of God through Jesus can change you, me, right now. Let me pray for you as we begin to close. Would you mind just bowing your heads for a moment here in the room? If you're online, wherever you are, right in your room or or apartment or or your car someplace, wherever you are, just take a moment here. I want to pray for you, for two kinds of folks. First, I want to pray for those those of us here watching and those in the room who, who have never received the grace of God in Jesus. What I mean by that is you've never allowed, like you heard that story, for Jesus to be Lord, him to be first in your life and to allow that grace to change you, your priorities. If that's you and you say, today is my day, I want that. Would you just raise your hand? No matter who you are, you're here in a room, you're online, right on your room, you can raise your hand right there, yeah. I want to pray for you and ask you actually to pray this prayer with me. And if you're well, actually, I'd like to ask all of us here, whether you're in the room, you're, you raise your hand, I'm at all of us to pray this prayer, especially those who raise your hands, pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I acknowledge I am in need of your grace. I am in need of your beauty to change me. And right now I give up my old life And I receive you as who you are, Lord, Savior. I ask that you forgive me of my sin. And I trust you now to keep me by your grace. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Well, I want to pray for a second group of people. People here are trusting for a reversal of some kind of situation, a turnaround moment, a turnaround time. Marriage, business, family, health, nation, work, all that. If that's that's you trusting God for some kind of reversal, would you just raise your hand right now? Yes, Lord, we come to you asking on behalf of these that you'd help us to see through Esther's story, mostly through Jesus' story, how you bring the greatest victories to what appear to be the greatest defeats. Lord, I pray for that encouragement to strike our hearts. And Lord, I'm asking that you would turn these situations around. We, have, we need to turn around in our family, turn around in our marriage, turn around with our children, reversal for our economy, reversal in our nation, hearts back to you. Lord, families back to you, nation back to you in reversal. We're asking you for it now as your people. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.